0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 56, Hell Harrowed, The World Flooded. Last time, I discussed the first and second shepherd's plays from the Wakefield cycle and dug into the elements of social commentary, comedy and religious messaging that both contain. These elements were combined in the plays, but with part of the very familiar nativity story being held quite separately from the other elements, with a clear division marked by the arrival of the announcing angel. There are other plays which treat the source material in slightly less reverential ways. In the plays dealing with Noah and the Flood, the non-biblical material is entwined with the biblical story much more closely. But first, a look at a play that takes a non-canonical subject and produces some highly dramatic moments. Let me take you to The Harrowing of Hell. First, I should establish exactly what The Harrowing of Hell is. Well, for starters, it's not biblical, not canonical. In the four biblical gospels, Jesus dies on the crucifix and is laid into the tomb. Three days later, his body is missing an episode with the three Marys that takes us right back to the original church drama, the Quim Quiritis. Jesus then appears to select of his followers until received into heaven to take his place with God. Biblically, there's no mention of what happens in the elapsed three days when Jesus was dead in the tomb, except for two passing references. The first letter of Peter in the New Testament says that on Jesus' death, good tidings were proclaimed to the dead and in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the line that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth has been accepted in standard theology to mean a descent into hell. However, the idea that Jesus spent this time in hell freeing the souls of the previously departed became part of Christian theology relatively quickly. It's mentioned in some very early theological teachings from about 150 CE, but the idea seems to have gained official recognition somewhat later. It's mentioned as an article of faith in the Apostles' Creed, which was composed in 5th century France and in the Athanasian Creed from about a century later, but significantly it was omitted from the official and earlier Nicene Creed of 325 CE. The two later creeds say that Jesus descended into hell, but don't mention that he went there to free souls. The origin of the story used in the play is found in the Apocryphal Gospel of Nicodemus. Although credited to a contemporary follower of Jesus, Nicodemus is mentioned in John's Gospel, scholarly agreement now puts the origin of the earliest parts of the text in the 4th century CE, but otherwise its composition is much debated. The oldest parts appear to be in Greek, but other versions in Latin, Coptic and other Slavonic languages have survived in fragmentary forms. The first part of the Gospel deals with the trial of Jesus and is based on the Gospel of Luke while the second part deals with the resurrection. The Harrowing of Hell episode features as an appendix that purports to be an official report written by Pontius Pilate to Emperor Claudius, describing the crucifixion and the resurrection. Despite being non-canonical, by the medieval period, the Harrowing of Hell had become commemorated in the Holy Saturday services, the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, so it was a well-known, if minor, feature in the liturgy. The word harrow has its origins in Old English and means to harry or despoil, so that harrowing of hell refers not only to the descent, but to the releasing of the previously deceased souls. As the tradition had developed, this referred particularly to the release of Adam and Eve and the most religious characters from the Old Testament. And there's one more tantalising glimpse of the harrowing before we get to the cycle play. There is an early 9th century book called The Book of Kern which is probably best described as a personal prayer book that includes a number of devotional texts and prayers. The text of a liturgical drama featuring the harrowing of hell is included, and this takes us right back to the period where drama was performed in church and in the setting of the Mass, and perhaps sits alongside the works I discussed in episode 50, Synod's Tropes, asses, and Fools, that featured a procession of Old Testament prophets. The drama is in the form of a dialogue between Adam and Eve and a narrator, with sung responses from a choir, and is one of the oldest examples of liturgical drama that has survived. The drama of the harrowing of hell may seem an odd inclusion to a devotional prayer book, but scholars suggest that the work was constructed to support a doctrine of the communion of saints that states that all Christians, living and dead, make up a single body of the church. As the damned are excluded from this group, the idea that Jesus saved the various Old Testament characters from Adam forward is obviously important to that idea. A cycle play on The Harrowing of Hell features in all four of the surviving complete cycles, and each follows a very similar line. The York version was performed by the Guild of Saddlers, and some evidence suggests that the Guild of Glazers and the Guild of Fustiers was also involved. Fustiers, and I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but if you know any better please do let me know, were a specialisation within saddlery. They made the saddle tree, which is the main wooden structural strength of a saddle, forming the weight-bearing part of the saddle and the front curl that goes around the bony withers of the horse, where a good fit is essential. There's no obvious reason why these guilds would have been responsible for this particular play, and in Chester the Descent into Hell play, as it's known there, was taken on by the guilds of cooks and innkeepers. In the Wakefield version of the play, officially called The Extraction or Rescue of Souls from Hell, Jesus descends to the gates of hell, declaring that his purpose is to challenge all that is mine. Adam detects the light of his coming from afar, and announces his imminent arrival to Eve and the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Moses, Simeon, and also John the Baptist. They take up a joyful song, praising Jesus as author of the world's salvation. Ribald, a demon and a porter in hell, raises the alarm and calls to Beelzebub, another demon, to come forward and prepare for battle. He says, Since first that hell was made, and I was put therein, such sorrow never e'er I had, nor heard I such a din. My heart begins to start, my wit waxes thin. I'm afraid we can't rejoice, these souls from us must go. Ho, Beelzebub, bind these bones, such noise was never heard in hell. As the alarm is raised other devils appear. Asterot, Annabal, Bereth and Belial, then Satan and Lucifer. These demons are specifically named and each had a place in demonology in the medieval period. Multiple legends and myths are developed about the demons from hell from Satan downward or maybe that should be Satan upward and some of the audience would have been aware of the backstory of each. Some, like Beelzebub, are referenced in the Bible and originate from figures of evil in earlier religions and societies. Lucifer, for example, has its origins in the Roman folklore around the planet Venus and the goddess Aurora. Here we also have Satan as a separate character, rather than Satan, the devil and Lucifer being the same being. Collectively, they give a great sense of the merging of the biblical with the myth and the legend, and we should remember that at the time, and for several hundred years more, demons and demonology were taken very seriously. Satan is angry at being disturbed and threatens to beat Beelzebub's brains out of his skull. The demons hold the gates closed, but as Jesus calls out in Latin for the gates to be lifted up in the face of the glory of God, Beelzebub cowers in the face of that power. He fears that all the souls in hell will be lost, but Satan appears and orders all of the demons to defend his kingdom and rise up to face Jesus. Jesus declares that he has come to take his own on the authority of his father. Satan says that he knew his father well by sight, and argues about the injustice of releasing all the damned souls. But when Jesus is unmoved, he asks to be released from hell himself. Refusing this, Jesus says he will nevertheless leave Satan some company, Cain, Judas, Akitapal, who was a disloyal counsellor of King David, Cato, and some others who've died by suicide. Jesus then adds that any who obey his laws will never come to hell. Satan rejoices at this, safe in the knowledge that man will fail and hell will soon be full again. He plans to walk the earth from east to west to lead men astray from God's laws, But Jesus commands him to stay in his own realm, and unable to resist, he sinks back into the pit of hell. Jesus leads the saved souls out of the underworld, and they all sing the Te Deum to end the play. So from a plot point of view, we can see that this is pretty straightforward stuff. Jesus dies and enters hell to free the virtuous dead. He's greeted by the Old Testament prophets who foretold his coming, Adam and Eve, and other well-known characters. He challenges the demons and Satan, overwhelming him with his power, opens the gates of hell and banishes Satan back into hell before leading the recovered souls to heaven. On the page, it's one speech after another, with the only obvious moments of tension being the discussion between Jesus and the devil. But let's think of this in performance. Have another look at the sketch of the stage set from Valenciennes. That's on the website gallery. The gates of hell are far stage left. Now let's think of Jesus entering onto a large wagon set up in the marketplace with a full stage set in place. Perhaps he enters on a raised platform and descends towards the set of gates placed on the stage. Perhaps these are placed less than halfway across the length of the stage as beyond them hell is represented. Perhaps Jesus holds up a lantern or maybe there's a light effect around him so that Adam can literally see his light from afar. Adam and the other dead souls must be gathered on the other side of the gates of hell and with them the porter demons who become so afraid of Jesus's presence. The recollections of the prophets are important to the religious message of the play but I think safe to say that it really came alive when the devils and demons appeared. The two gatekeepers are distressed by the dead talking of leaving and think they will have to tie them down bind their bones they say. And they describe the dead as living in limbo the sense of what hell actually is gets mixed up here. For the Christian hell is a place of eternal torture but going back to the source in the gospel of Nicodemus hell is a place but also a person who represents death but not evil itself. We don't see hell personified here but there is the more pagan sense of it being an empty desolate place especially where the term limbo is used as it is here. Perhaps once again, we're seeing a mixing of traditions here, where the newer Christian ideals are overlaid onto older pagan traditions that are not quite forgotten, even after centuries of Christianization. Although there are a few demons named in the text, I think it's safe to assume that the stage would have been swarming with extras dressed as demons, probably in black costumes, horns, tails, tridents, and maybe some pyrotechnics as they emerged from the pit of hell at one end of the stage. When the devils are called to defend the kingdom, well, literally, all hell can break loose. They could threaten characters and the audience, frighten children to tears and cavort on the stage in whatever way they liked. The audience could boo and shout and mock these evil creatures with impunity. But this calms down when we get to the central debate of the play. The emphasis is on the simple life that Jesus led and his death that offers salvation to mankind. Satan is forced to concede and is forced back into the pit of hell, and again, we can imagine some fireworks and noxious smells from the technical team hidden behind the set as he disappears into the mouth of hell. Or perhaps there was a staged trapdoor and Satan made a dramatic fall into hell. There are two highly dramatic and theatrical moments here the opening of the gates of hell and the exit of Satan. Were the gates simply pushed open, or was there an explosion as they dramatically fell? If you remember Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films I think we can compare this to a you shall not pass moment as Gandalf and the Borag battle it out in the minds of Maria but with a better outcome. I mean that in the sense of the dramatic moment and the cheer from the audience as they are carried along with the triumph of Satan being vanquished. But if you watch that clip again, you can also see how much the representation of the Balrog and Tolkien's original description, which the film is very closely based on, owe much to the medieval illustrations of devils and demons. In the Chester version of the play, the saved souls are led to paradise for the celebratory hymn, but the action then returns to hell. This final scene sits a bit uncomfortably with the rest of the play and is probably a later addition. In it, a drunken alewife enters hell to a chorus of singing, cavorting and pot-banging by demons. She confesses to diluting the town's ale, and Satan is happy to welcome her into his kingdom. Arguably, the dancing of the demons is a counterpoint to the heavenly hymns that have just preceded it, but more than likely, this scene is just added to lift the piece to a comic finish, and the character of a drunk woman who adulterated the ale was an easy target for a laugh. The representation of the breaking open of Hell was no doubt a challenge for the guilds, but they all took their obligations seriously and we can assume they applied everything that their means would allow to this task. Perhaps even more demanding, especially from a design point of view, was the idea of representing a huge ship on stage. It's undeniable that another play with plenty of opportunity for visual dramatic moments is the play of Noah and the Great Flood. This story, not very surprisingly, features in all the complete cycles in a very similar form. In the Wakefield version, the name of the town appears in the title of the manuscript, Noah and his sons, Wakefield. So we can say with some certainty that differences between this version and the York version represent the additions and changes made by the Wakefield master. This version follows the Bible closely, with its emphasis on the corruption of men that prompted God's decision to bring the flood. Noah is shown as the only good man because of his obedience to God's will and the conflict in the play doesn't come from any doubt he might be having in God's purpose but in the objections raised by his wife. The tradition of Noah's wife being reluctant to enter the ark is thought as part of popular culture to predate the cycle plays by a very long time. It's notably referred to in Chaucer's Miller's Tale. In the play, the Wakefield Master restrains Mrs. Noah's objections to three challenges before she acquiesces, mirroring the denials of Peter to Jesus, as we told as part of the Passion of Christ. This is just one of the biblical references that link the creation to the flood to Jesus to the final judgment. And this is also tied in, in a theological sense, to the common and widespread acceptance of the culpability of women in the misleading of men originating with Eve and the temptation of Adam so this was well-trodden religious ground, but also offered the opportunity for comedy at the expense of women, again an easy target at the time. Across the cycles, the story following the building of the Ark typically follows the same pattern, but with different levels of intensity over the reaction of Mrs Noah. As the water rises and the rain continues, the time has come to depart, but Noah's wife isn't ready to leave. Noah sends his sons to find his wife but she refuses to come and when she relents it's only to satisfy her curiosity about what her husband is up to. He is welcoming but she refuses to stay saying she at least has to gather pots and pans and other household items for the journey but then adding that she also wants to find her relations and friends. He refuses to let her go saying they have to leave now and she chides him for not giving her more notice. He points out that he's been building a large boat for ages and she should have realised that something was going on. In the Chester version, the argument gets quite slapstick and Noah and his wife have been compared to a Punch and Judy show in the way that they go at each other. In the end, there is a slap and Mrs. Noah is carried onto the ark by her sons by force. Much as that conflict between husband and wife is seen uh, to the greatest extent in the Chester version of the play, It also focuses on the process of building the ark and gathering the procession of animals. Noah is a strongly virtuous character and in this case actually has to face God to receive his instructions. God was a character on stage but no doubt played from far above. In York the play was split into two parts, the building of the ark and the flood. There was a shipbuilders guild who built the prop arc and presented the first play with the guild of fishers and mariners joining together to present the second play. Records suggest that the fishers guild was the senior party in the performance with members of the guild of mariners choosing whether to just make a financial contribution or to actually be involved with the performance. How far the prop arc was used in both plays is open to question. The text of the first play suggests that it was built on stage, presumably to some scale, and to be representative of the ark. With the plays being repeated year on year, that suggests that not only was the prop made in some easy to assemble way during the play, but that it could then be dismantled and reused in the following year. Perhaps only part of it was seen, maybe the prow or the stern, and the rest imagined, as even a scaled down but complete version would have been a huge challenge. However, as I've noted before, there is a real danger in underestimating the abilities and the resources of the guild when it came to producing these plays. The Noah plays must really have tested stage designers. I already mentioned that we have records that show how rain effects were used and suggest that a lot of water was drained from hidden tanks onto the stage. And the set from Valenciennes seems to show that water pools were used on stage. But there are lots of questions too. Where wagons were used, as in York, such elaborations seem unlikely, but maybe some water could be stored backstage and above and poured over the arc, onto actors, or even splashing the audience at opportune moments. Perhaps the medieval stage crew had already learnt that stage effects are not always about scale and that the application of a subtle effect at the right moment can be entirely convincing. We know that performers sometimes spilled off the pageant wagons and onto the streets around the crowd. Did Mrs Noah make her way from the street to the stage and up onto the prop arc as she railed against her husband's foolishness? That gives Noah a nice strong position to command from and plenty of opportunity for manhandling her in the name of comedy and a chance for the audience to chastise her as she moves through them. I should add here that it's generally assumed that the character of like Mrs Noah would be played by a man. The records rarely mention women, but neither is there any evidence of an outright ban on them. So we assume that they did not take on major roles but could have been involved in productions both on stage and off. And then there's the question of the animals. We've already seen that producers were not afraid of using animals, donkeys and sheep particularly. And we have records that suggest that live birds were used for the moments where they're released from the ark. But clearly getting a large number of animals to line up two by two and march into the ark would be a jeopardy too far. Perhaps wooden cutouts were made to be wheeled across the stage, or the animals simply painted onto the side of the ship and in some way uncovered as the doors were closed. The Chester script suggests that this was the case there, with the animal images being revealed as Noah's sons mentioned them in the verse. Maybe there was a mixture of all of the above. In some versions, where the procession of the animals is not emphasised, perhaps they were just imagined. In each version the journey of the ark is passed over quickly with maybe just a few lines about caring for the animals and the passing of 40 days. The younger members of the family complain about the tedious life on board ship. We've seen in the Shepherd's play that the passing of time and distance didn't hold any particular challenge for medieval staging so I suspect that these lines alone suffice to mark the passing of the journey and no other elaboration was used. The raven and the dove released to find dry land may have been real birds in some cases or models on ropes. In the York play the role of these birds is expanded as a non-biblical legend about the colour of the raven is included. Noah releases a white raven who understands what he should do but as he flies to dry land he finds some drowned animals. He is selfish and decides to stay and feast on the carrion rather than returning to the ark and as a punishment from God he's turned black. The dove is a symbol of faithfulness and purity, and of course, returns with the evidence of the receding flood. And the last great effect in the play is, of course, the rainbow. It's a potent symbol and must have been included, not just recited about. There are many possibilities a painted rainbow hung from a crane, perhaps, or unveiled across the stage on a rope. Sadly, once again, we have no evidence for how this was done. In his introduction to the Penguin collection of mystery plays, Dr. Peter Happe highlights two central difficulties that face the modern reader of the cycle plays. The first is the lengthy time over which these plays were written, with the inevitability of many authorial hands being involved. Dr. Happe describes the authorial process as being one of translation, accretion, adaptation, and revision, which all adds up to an inability to detect a strong authorial hand. There is of course one exception to this in the form of the Wakefield Master but even he was subject to the long history of the genre and the clerical constraints of his time. The second difficulty he identifies is the lack of a critical theory, no poetics as he puts it. There's no attempt to justify, explain or theorise on these works. It is possible of course that any such works have simply been lost but it would be strange for not one single scrap of evidence to exist. So that does seem unlikely. Surely, it's far more likely that because the plays were overtly didactic and sanctioned, if not produced, from the position of authority, that of the Church, that the message of God's plan was the only unifying theory that was needed. I wonder if the authors of these plays, who were in the main clerical scholars to one degree or another, were much more controlled by their masters than we have evidence for. And they would have been willingly so controlled. They were, after all, men who were committed to the promulgation of the message of the Church, and it would not have been in their interest to produce a play that pushed at the boundaries too much, especially in a period where anything construed as heresy could lead you into a lot of trouble at least, and at worst, death. What we do have in the plays is a continual attempt to expand the theatrical possibilities through the sets and effects, and, I can only hope, through the performances. I think it's in plays like The Harrowing of Hell that we can see this the most. As the source material was not canonical, the authors have a little more freedom, although still working within the constraints of the form. Even in a closely followed biblical tale like that of Noah and the Flood, augmentations were possible, and theatrical expression could be found through the effects used to show the ark, the animals and the deluge. At their best, these plays have an exuberance in the performance that we can miss when studying them on the page. That exuberance is perhaps the expression of the urge to mimic, perform and express true feelings that at least matches that found in other better known genres. The lasting irony is that this works best when it is the evil characters, the bad people and the darkest places of the imagination that are being represented. Even as man attempted to glorify God and his plan, it seems they could not help flexing their artistic muscles against it and there we can see a glimpse of the future. For all that much of this genre is opaque to us now, it nevertheless fed into the drama that was to come, where the religious mind met the classical scholar and inquiring minds found not the voice and immutable plan of God, but the inner voice and uncertainties of man. Next time we'll move on from the cycle or mystery plays and take a look at the closely related dramatic form, the morality play. Although we move away from the retelling of biblical stories, this is still all about man's relationship with God and how a good life was to be lived in the context of God's plan. In the meantime, please take a look at the Facebook group and join us there or follow the podcast on Twitter to get a little fix of theatre and history. If you'd like to support the show, please post a rating or even a review on Apple Podcasts or go to patreon.com for more content for a small monthly fee. All contributions go towards offsetting the costs of hosting the podcast and are gratefully received. You can also find all the episodes, a bibliography and much else on the website. That's www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. Please do take a look and let me know what you think. If you have any suggestions for the website, questions, comments or concerns, you can always reach me by email at thotp or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.